you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We are moving at glacial speed through this letter going verse by verse every week, as is our custom here. But I remind us that this is no ordinary text. These words are the words of God. As the Apostle Paul dictates, so too does God speak. And he doesn't just speak in their day, in that moment. He speaks to us by his word. Let's keep that in mind as we continue our study. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we come and gather here this morning, as we sing songs that the church has sung for so long, we herald what they herald. Salvation come through Jesus Christ alone. Lord, your word reminds us that there is only one name. There is only one achiever. There is only one obedient son living up to the demands of your holy and good law. And we claim your offer that his righteousness be ours. And that our unrighteousness was paid for by you on the cross. Lord, that is the gospel that we adore. That is the good news that we have come together to gather, to speak to one another, to celebrate with one another. And so, Lord, meet with us. Come and meet with us, you who condescended all the way to the cross. Come and meet with your people today. 
that we would hear your voice, that we would understand what you are saying, that we would reject all other things as you reject them and stand alone, alone in the mercy and grace of the gospel. Give us that peace and joy we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. This is the gospel of grace and freedom that we have been talking about. We know that this is the reason that Paul wrote this letter that we forget and that we face opposition. Last week, we progressed in our journey. We must review a little bit so we can pick up where we were and keep walking forward. But this is not an intellectual exercise. This is not an academic journey. What you believe seeps into or alters what you do, what you choose, what you love. So we will remember these two theological terms that drive the letter. Orthodoxy, right belief, true belief, correct belief. And orthopraxy, right action, correct action, straight, straight action. And we remembered last week, and I remind us again today, that doctrine is essential. It is essential for our joy, for our comfort, and for our peace for whom among us is joy elusive right now? For whom among us does the comfort of God seem distant? Dare I say absent? For whom among us are our hearts unsettled? No longer at rest. Troubled in the waking hours and constraining or limiting the sleeping hours. Orthopraxy, how you live, is informed by, governed by what you believe. We talked last week about the distinction between our stated values, what we say we believe, what we say we trust, from our lived values, our lived beliefs, our lived choices. The conflict that's taking place at the very core of this moment that Paul is addressing the churches with and walking them through this historical moment from Antioch is because 
there's conflict. And as conflict often is, it's multi-variable. There is a convergence of lots of pieces. That's why Paul is slowly arguing this out. That we would understand the history, understand the foundation that history was embedded with, and then be able to apply it to right now. That we would understand what is true. Hallelujah. That we would understand what is true. And that we would live in light of truth for a culture so filled with deception and pretending. Oh, who am I kidding? What culture wasn't filled with pretending? What moment in history of humankind was not soaked in, saturated in, overwhelmed by pretense. From the fall, we've been hiding from God. From the fall, we've been hiding from one another, covering ourselves in things that we think are more beautiful, more trustworthy than us. At the heart of the problem here is verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, whose conduct? There's a group of powerful, maybe we wouldn't use this term nobly, but we're going to use it so you can understand the reverence involved here. There's a noble group that comes from Jerusalem and sees that in the church of Antioch, Jews and Gentiles have fellowship with each other. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal to you. Drop yourself in the 1950s at a diner in the south and walk in with a party of black and white people. Are they treated the same? Are they sat at the same table? The horror. But in their culture in that moment, it was a horror. It was scandal. Because blacks and whites can't use the same toilets. Can't use the same water fountains. You think they can sit at the same table? Some human, some all but or maybe actually believed to be subhuman. Like bringing your dog for an ice cream treat at Dairy Queen. Have you seen this? You can go through the line at Dairy Queen and literally order soft serve for your dog. In that moment, let's call it the 1950s, people treated like pets, or worse. You think that's not still true today? The humane society 
cares for who? Say it. Dogs. It's called the humane society. Why is that not a woman's shelter? Right? Why is that not addressing homelessness and food scarcity? When Peter is enjoying what God had revealed to him that he was against as an obstacle, you remember the vision, rise, kill, eat? No, rise, kill, eat, no, rise, kill, eat, no. Wonder what that was all about. Oh, do you remember when God said, do not call people unclean that I have made clean? Are black people and white people, they're pink anyway, belong at the same table? Share the same dignity? Reflect the same true image of God? Then why on earth would a group of people who've known God's word their whole life, grown up in the proverbial church, studied the same scripture we spent two years on with David, that we've studied in Ruth and Jonah and Exodus in our church's history. They have that holy writ. And they fume at the thought that Peter and other Jewish Christians would dare to so devastatingly mingle with people of a different culture, background, language, history. They wrongly assume so many things about the nature of God, about the proper use of God's law, and the true passionate desire of God's heart for the nations, for people from every tribe, people from every tongue, people from every ethnic background. This group called the Judaizers the James Gang, the Circumcision Party, they influenced Peter, behind the scenes perhaps, by the glare and gaze. Have you guys ever known somebody's upset with you without a word spoken? Is it in their chin? Is it in their eyes? Is it in their shoulders? Might be in their fist? Right before they swing, never let them swing first. Just kidding. Not really kidding. All right, fair. <laughs> Off topic, slip of the tongue. 
so Peter, instead of standing in the truth of rise, kill, eat, instead of standing in the truth that the gospel has always been for the nations, the design in the Old Testament is so simple. The people of God were supposed to be like a city on the hill whose light shined all the time in the dread of darkness, in the threat of attack. You were supposed to run to the city, hide in the city, take refuge in the city, go to the city for food when you're starving, for clothing when you're naked, for help in all seasons. Their passion to worship God was designed by God, commanded by God, enabled by God so that they would see God and run to him and live with him. Israel built moats in their proverbial defiance. They raised the city walls instead of the city gate being lowered and widened. Israel very rarely had light or cared to keep it going. You have to let the worst of these moments come into the focus of your minds or you will obscure the best of these moments. The very mercy of God. What Peter chose to do was to shrink back. Peter reversed course. God said together and Peter said not popular. I like being a somebody in Jerusalem. I can come and go as I please. People like when I speak. People are eager for me to tell them about Jesus. And I like being important. And I will not risk for these Gentile sinners the loss of, I don't know, influence, power, money, access, fame. Peter was acting ashamed of what he should have been proclaiming and celebrating. See, Peter, because of the observance and objections of a party, that seemed to have power and influence and access, Peter seemed to agree with them that circumcision should be an added condition as a basis for fellowship. After all, there were Gentiles in the Old Testament who came in to the people of God, yes? There are outsiders become insiders Pretty sure that's the main theme of a couple of prophetic letters. 
those who are not my people, they're going to become my people? Jesus himself said, I have people of sheep that are not of this pen. I'm going to go to them too. Who's the other people? Who's the other sheep? Me. You. Kind of everybody in the room, but like half of Jacob. Like a quarter of Emmett. Is he in here? All right, good. He's in the nursery. I can stay loud. Peter's seeming to add circumcision as an extra condition, as the basis for fellowship. And that Paul can't tolerate because it undercuts the truth and glory of the gospel. Peter, out of fear, shrinks back, reverses courses, and changes his behavior. And Paul has to attack it. He has to address it. This public sin in his conduct requires public attention and rebuke. The correction, not just of what he's believing, but what he's doing that reveals either the hypocrisy of his belief, most likely, or the misunderstanding of what he should be believing. Less likely, but possible. This is where Paul springboards into the doctrine of justification. The courtroom image of standing before a holy God and giving account. We barely do that in our own culture. How many of you have your kids line up formally and give an accounting of their day laid before you that you would inspect it and judge you did right, you did wrong. This is great. We want more of that. This, you remember I put you in timeout and then you were getting out of timeout. I had to put you back in timeout for being out of timeout and then we could do the original timeout. I'm the only one? All right. The doctrine of justification is not abstract. It is the question of humanity. How do I stand as an unrighteous person with an unrighteous track record and be allowed into the presence of one so pure that he can never be in the presence of the unrighteous? We wonderfully and it poses some challenges, if we're honest, are too familiar, if that's possible, with just pointing at Jesus. We're like, yep, Jesus, don't need to understand the rest. Walk on. We spent our time last week primarily focused on the doctrine of justification seen in verse 16. Let me remind us of a couple of things we saw. First, legalism 
vocab word. Legalism is seeking acceptance from God by keeping the law. You're always trying to have favor with God based on your performance. Or maybe your regret for a failed performance. You ever, got, you ever offer that? You're like, God, I know I did bad, but I feel really bad about it. How many parents are like, oh, as long as you have remorse, don't worry about it. Consequences lifted. That was most of my childhood. You might not know this, but occasionally I can be a smooth talker. And my mom has a monstrous heart. She doesn't want to do bad. She doesn't want to punish. She wants to love and quilt and make things and, and connect with people and have, yeah, right? If you've met her, she'll connect you to somebody. Be careful what you tell her you love. You'll get a lot of invitations and even more information about it. Love you, Mom. Thanks for not being here this morning. <laughs> I could totally talk my way and use remorse as a leveraging tool to relieve the stress of accountability and the consequence for my actions. Legalism is seeking acceptance from God by keeping, or occasionally loving, quote unquote, the law of God. We saw that to be justified in the throne rooms of heaven, we must have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ as the object of our faith. Remember, we negated that faith is a basis on its own. Having faith in something. <laughs> Only faith in the active obedience, the substitutionary atonement, of Jesus Christ, the covenant keeper, all in this room of any age, covenant breaker. So we don't appeal to how good we did unless we get a flat tire and we feel wronged. By who? How many of you blame Michelin? For your flat tires, the construction that's endless around here, that drops nails on highways. It's like, God, this is your fault. Oh, is that idiot making $20 an hour not picking up? Sorry. Do you understand how personal what we believe and how we think really is? Your Tuesday is different. Your Saturday is different because of what you believe. So faith must have Christ as its object. And so when we saw verse 16, we understood it to have three parts. One generally true, 
One personally true, Peter and Paul know each other, and in the intimacy of that relationship, they agreed together that they were not saved by obedience or loyalty to the law. They were not saved because of proximity to the temple or tabernacle. So justification is general, it's personal. And then we concluded in the third part, running out of time, kind of as usual, with the third part as universal. There's this universal truth that we get at the very end of 16. That's where we're picking up today. It is stated that what is generally true, Paul teaches, must become personally true. And also, always has been, is, and will be forever universally true. What is this universal truth? It's that by works of the law, verse 16 at its end, by works of the law, no one will be justified in the courtroom of heaven before the holiest of judges, by the one who sees all, knows all. Where are my kids at? Where are my kids at? Do you think God doesn't hear your thoughts? Do you think you have hidden something from his gaze that you have negotiated out of what's universally true? He sees you. He knows you. And he, despite your best efforts or worst, loves you comes to rescue and deliver you. Peter and Paul have stopped trusting their obedience to the law of God as the basis for their right standing with God. RSWG. Find out what it means to me. <laughs> RSWG. How do you have right standing with God? How do you have peace with God? How does the holy God, the omnipotent, filled with all knowledge, past, present, future, all, how does the one who is ever-present, omnipresent, is everywhere all the time, so completely surrounds and embeds and knows the world that he created? How do you think you get to walk into his throne room how much power does the king of England have right now? It's not a trick question. 
Very little. But do you think you can walk in and schedule an appointment? I don't care who the president is. Do you think you get to knock on the door of the White House with a question? Yeah, a long time ago. Jacob, a very long time ago. 1865, that's why I keep him around. You can march into the throne room of heaven. In fact, we've been there this morning. Did you know that? Day, night, joy, sorrow, peace, war, doesn't matter. Anywhere on earth, anywhere in the cosmos, you can leave right where you are and enter in to the most glorious place anyone has ever created because man didn't create that throne room. God did. So what do you trust to give you access to heaven? What do you trust that would allow you, sinner, peace and invited presence to be with God? Who gets to meet the president? There's usually like a merit criteria, right? You know, sometimes he gives you an award. What's the blue one with a star? Congressional Medal of Honor. Who puts that on? The president of the United States does. How much greater is the kingdom of heaven than the America we live in? As cool as it would be to shake the hand of the president, you can dive into the lap of the maker and creator of all things. They've stopped trusting their obedience to the law of God as the basis for their right standing with God. Why? Because no human obedience can reach the standard. And even if a flashing moment you could reach the standard, you can't stay in that standard. Paul is specifically pointing out to Peter that he cannot compel the Gentiles to uphold, to keep the very law that Peter himself has stopped trusting for his own salvation. The law condemns because you can't clear its bar. You can't keep its standard. So that is the question then that reveals the problem. How does a righteous God accept an unrighteous person like me? Like you. Like the best moral person you know. The great Calvin, John Calvin says this. We are justified in no other way than by faith in Jesus Christ. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Why do we need 1,500 pages 
to understand. Just point at Jesus. Just plead Jesus. You don't have to know much. Just point at Jesus. And that's not wrong. But it is gloriously and terrifyingly incomplete. Not for salvation. That's the orthodoxy right there. Jesus. The orthopraxy is the rest of it. This is where verse 17 comes from. Most of us, if we're reading this, we don't get verse 17. 17 is confusing. 18, mesmerizingly difficult. 19, I think I'm with you. 20, love 20, quote 20. That's my orthodoxy, baby. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Hallelujah, amen, that's the truth. Forget everything else. I was so close until that forget everything else, right? Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners as Christ of what? If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. I think I can do that. Is Christ a servant of sin? What? I can't even finish the. Is Christ a servant of sin? Does sin master Jesus Christ? What is he talking about? What's the problem? What's the issue? It doesn't even make sense. It's a dumb question. Whoa. I just said Paul had a dumb question. All right, so the problem's going to be with me. Why isn't that a dumb question? Have you ever done that when you're reading the Bible? I'm serious. You come to a place, and it doesn't even, like, why it's there doesn't make sense, let alone what it's saying. And what it's saying doesn't make sense, let alone why is it there? Why doesn't he say, Jesus, no legalism, let's eat? Why is it that simple? Because people aren't simple. Ideas and truth, they're not simple. I love watching YouTube shorts once in a while. By the way, free tip, if you ever want somebody to leave the bathroom and they're over, let's say, 16, turn the Wi-Fi off and that bathroom will be open like, sometimes when I'm in there, I'll scroll. And one of my favorite moments is to watch someone try and explain why something is very simple. They're like, oh, sin, suffering, evil, oh, that's easy. God didn't do it, we did. Click. I mean, are they wrong? No. But it's incomplete. Because you want to go, well, why? How's he still righteous? Why does he condemn us if he has, like, all the power, right? Kevin, you conveniently forgot omni- uh, potent earlier. You did presence, you did knowledge, but you didn't really do power. 
well, I don't want to put Jesus on a hook, and so I got to explain it away because Jesus needs me to say things that he doesn't say so I can make someone else feel better? (laughs) That's not just bad theology. It's unloving. The truth is loving. It can be presented with malice as its intent. It can be wrapped in malice in its delivery. Sometimes complex things are complex. What on earth is the attack here? What's the objection? The objection is not table fellowship. No, it's because there are people who believe that the table fellowship between these mixed races, mixed religions, people of different backgrounds. Remember the categories. We saw it in verse 15. There is Gentile sinner and Jew. Chosen people. Which side? Come on, y'all. Who's the chosen people? The, the Gentiles or the Jews? Okay. Are there exceptions to that among the Gentiles? Are they a lot in the Old Testament? Now, nah, we, we just can't say that. It wouldn't be real. Are there none? Nah, there aren't none. Praise God for Rahab. She's actually in the genealogy of our Savior. Don't ever let somebody tell you the Bible doesn't value women. It's a grotesque lie. How do we make peace with God? How do we maintain peace with God? Why is Jesus being accused of working for the taskmaster of sin? Because Peter and his friends, before their noble arrival, sarcasm, were together in unity, peace, fellowship. But they point backwards to the law. And they say, that's not what the law says we should be doing. You have lost your moral compass seen by this action. So Jesus promotes sin. Jesus promulgates sin because the people who claim faith in him do sinful things. Like eat together. Do you see the premise is the problem? The people who come are the problem. They think Peter's the problem. They think Paul's gone rogue. This whole Christianity thing, that's not proper Judaism, which is only true if you don't understand proper Judaism. They think they speak for God and they condemn themselves with every word, with every look. In the mind of the Judaizers, 
Peter and Paul were living like Gentile sinners. Their praxi revealed their doxy as not straight. They believed that Peter and his friends, Paul and others, were eating unholy food with unholy people. How do we call people unholy whom God has made holy? Do you see how evil this is? It's not just wrong. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Put this truth in a diner in the 1950s and tell me what glorifies God. Do you think heaven will be segregated? Say it again. What? Then why are our dinner tables? Is Jesus Christ in the business of promoting sin? No, he's in the business of ending it. Removing it. Is there a point in human time and space where Jesus submits to sin. That's on the cross. But he's there in my place. Is Jesus a sinner? No. He's the only righteous son of God that ever was or will be this side of Do you know that you'll be a righteous son of God in heaven without even the capacity to sin? Speed the day, Lord. So why the question, if I, in my endeavor to be justified by my union with Christ, that in Christ language, put some parentheses on that. In your Bible, yes, I'm telling you to do this. Put a small set of parentheses or brackets around in Christ and off into the margin, no matter how tiny your writing must be, and I don't do this very often, but I want you to see the glorious doctrine of union with Christ. So scrawl that just on the side, union with Christ. Every time you see in Christ or in Jesus Christ, What's being discussed there is what is true of you because of your union with Christ. If in our endeavor to be justified in our union with Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Does Christ promote sin? No. Is there a Christian among us, please, by raising your hand so we can all look? Is there one in here who is justified by faith in Christ, by their union with Christ, who is no longer in any sense a sinner? By all means, please raise your hand. 
we would like to applaud you for doing what we are incapable of doing. The Judaizers would take a bow. The circumcision party would say, yeah, we're justified by our works. We do it cleaner, better, purer, because they're only external barriers anyway, right? So what happens if you have faith in Christ and you're still sinning? Won't you always be exposed as a sinner? The legal standing you have with God is righteous. The lived experience you have is Simul Eustace, at the same time, just at peccator and sinner, righteous and sinner. That is the condition of every Christian, every day, all day, in any breath, in any hour, in any season, in any decade. If you are in Christ, which comes by faith in Christ alone, you are two things in all moments. You are righteous in the throne room of heaven. God grants you the blessings Jesus obeyed despite your disobedience. You earned curses. He takes those from you with all the penalties in tow. And he gives you blessings, the blessings he earned with every breath, in every hour, in every season, till his final exhale and surrender to suffocation as your atoning sacrifice. God smiles at you like a proud father whose son does the most excellent thing. That's yours. Do you think like that every day, all day, throughout the week? Do you? Or are you aware that you're a sinner? That you're drowning in the darkness of guilt? That you're clinging to all this shame? Some what you have done, some what others have done to you. And you look to that shame, that darkness, that fear as more true of who you are than how the God of the cosmos views you. But when you see the kindness of God, it leads you to repentance. Did you know that? Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. How many times on a random Thursday night do you believe that it is not that way? That you should repent to get kindness? Ugh. You want to know who's promoting sin in this passage? The Judaizers. Because they're going to the law saying it isn't what it is. 
saying it does what it doesn't. Who promotes sin? Who promotes suffering? Sorrow without healing. You do not have access to God because of what you wanted or did or thought. You have access to God because he gave you Christ's righteousness. And he removes from you all of your unrighteousness. So, if Jesus is not in the business of sin, Jesus is not promoting sin, wouldn't that be like God's grace should be blamed for my guilt before the law? That is what is happening in verse 17. Is God's grace to be blamed for my guilt? If I'm still a sinner, after I become a Christian, is it not my fault? Say it with me. It is my fault. It is my fault. The deficiency is not in the law. The deficiency that shows my guilt is me. What I wanted, what I thought, what I did, what I didn't do, we can go for a long time in that way. Here's the justification in verse 16. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Next week, we're going to dive neck deep into Psalm 143. And I tell you now so you can read it. You can saturate in it. You can soak in it. You can pick it apart and put it back together. Because... This is my closing. Sometimes Paul directly quotes phrase by phrase, verse by verse from the Old Testament. You familiar with that? Sometimes he teaches the same point with a reference to what it was said and how it was said. But sometimes you have this larger, slightly more abstract that we as theologians refer to as principled reference. That there's this thing that's being taught, celebrated, understood. And the New Testament doesn't directly reference it specifically. But because the author knows his Bible better than we know our Bible, he can make a claim based on that principal reference. The reason Paul this astounding assertion that by works of the law, no one will be justified is because Paul's not inventing a new religion. He's telling us what's always been true. And so he has this principled reference from Psalm 143. You're going to love this. It's from the life of David. And it's a psalm David wrote when he was in crisis. Twofold crisis. Here's your preview. He's being pursued by enemies and tormented with guilt. 
So he cries out to God. This is a principled reference for Paul as he teaches us how we have peace with God. What you will see this week or wait for next Sunday is that David is appealing to God for salvation on the basis of God's own righteousness. David wants God's righteousness to be accounted to him. He, he wants faith, trust in God to be counted as righteousness. If you want a cross-reference on that, Genesis 15, 6 is there for you. Abe believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's some good news, amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we agree with you that we are sinner and saint. Some in this room struggling with the sainthood of righteousness that you have given because we're overwhelmed by how much of a sinner we are, by how easily we yield and capitulate and indulge the sin that destroys, yet we cling to it. Some of us struggle to identify the sin in our heart because our behavior looks pretty cleaned up on the outside. Protect us, O oh Lord, from being whitewashed tombs, rotting on the inside, polished and buttoned up on the out. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grow us in the merciful grace of this doctrine and that you would give us peace, comfort, and yes, joy in the grace, peace, and freedom of the gospel that we, that we know, that we love, that we live, that we herald, and that we are about to sing about. Lord, may the words on the screen be ever more true in our hearts and in our lives. May our orthodoxy be true and not false. And may our orthopraxy reveal your mercy and power more and more every day. And all God's people agree. <laughs>